Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, how do I say this politely? The political has hit the fan. It seems that politicians from every stripe were traveling during the holidays while telling you to stay home. Public school students are home again. A new recording has been released of Donald Trump trying to pressure Georgia's Republican Secretary of State to change the election results. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Are you supposed to be in school? How come you're even home? I don't get it. Oh, here we go. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son, starting off the new year at home, online schooling. Move over mom, dad, and university sister. And don't hog the Wi-Fi. Kurt is in class. It's the 2021 edition of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. All right, get back to class. Are you on a lunch break? Or? <laughs> Are you on a lunch break? He goes, no, I'm on mute. Nice. Does the teacher even know you're away? Oh, man. He would say, you know, uh, I, I used to say to him, you know, even if you're in class, just go away and or, or do it live. You know, you can do it on the phone. You can, you know, if you forget to record it, you can record it in front of your class. You can make like a social studies thing out of it. No, no, no. Uh, oh, yeah, it's Monday, and we're back. Good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Happy New Year to you, Will, and uh, everybody else out there. Happy New Year, Scott. Uh, back at you, pal, and uh, uh, hope it was a good one for you, and uh, lots of hope and uh, happiness and all that sort of crap coming. <laughs> As we head into the new year, uh, kids are homeschooling uh, online. Shouldn't say homeschooling because that means I'd be doing it. Uh, the kids are uh, online as of today. So uh, if your house is like mine, uh, it's a full house and there's lots of activity and uh, lots of stuff to talk about as this is the first show back of 2021 and a very odd holiday, uh, obviously, and, and uh, a lot of frustration. And But, you know, again, it's uh, remember, as I said in the commentary today, uh, remember how you felt when the clock struck midnight, uh, 2021 and keep that with you, uh, especially for the first part of this year, because it will be a difficult one. But the good news is, uh, more vaccination on the horizon. And uh, as we head into January, February, and March, we are hoping to, uh, to see more of that into the arms of, uh, Canadians and hopefully light at the end of the tunnel as we uh, get into the spring. So, uh, lots to be optimistic about as we head into 2021 here's what the premier had to say in regard to the delay in actually getting the vaccines that we do have into the arms of ontarians well i'm, I'm confident uh, with, with any uh, rollout that we've had throughout this pandemic there's a, a few bumps in the road but we have proven as as ontarians uh, once we get rolling we'll, we'll be number one in the entire country hoping we'll be number one in, in north america we're going to be going full steam uh, forward. And I have all the confidence in the world and, and the minister and uh, president, CEOs of hospitals, and, and I have confidence in the general. Uh, we're ramping it up, and you're going to see a significant difference over the next uh, few weeks there. All right, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert, and uh, has commented for us uh, pretty much for the duration of uh, 2020 and now as we head into 2021. Dr. Ahmad Khalid is with us. Happy New Year to you, doctor. Uh, your thoughts on where we are uh, this Thank January you, 4th, Happy 2021. Uh, my thoughts are, you know, we're, we're, I love how you said that uh, the thoughts that we had going into the new year, we should remember them now because I think there is a frustration on twofold. One is the vaccination rate that's happening in the country. And two, the disturbing news about our politicians traveling during the holiday season when there's strict advice in, in the place. So I think the first one to tackle is vaccination rate. I think most people uh, are, are, are questioning when are we getting vaccinated? Why are we not amping up vaccination rates? Uh, and when is the projected timeline that we should be expecting the needle to go into people's hands and that's still oh, sorry arms and i'm not sure we still have a clear definition of when that will happen 
So your thoughts on, and again, we heard the Premier talking about this this morning and really didn't give a straight answer as to why more of these that have already been received have not been uh, administered. Should we have, should we be uh, at a better place right now considering what we have in freezers? Uh, for the most part, yes. I mean, we have to remember that it was a surprise that we received the shipment in December. I think most of us expected that the, 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 the supply of the vaccine will happen somewhere around January. And we got this surprise shipment in December. I don't think we were ready for distribution. I don't believe that we were. We figured out a mechanism for that distribution. Uh, and we know that. I mean, this is not a, a big surprise to, to many of us because we knew that the biggest issue that's going to happen with vaccine is distribution. How do we make sure that it's distributed at a wide scale? The problem with the Pfizer is the temperature, and it's been advised by Pfizer to the Canadian government to do not try to move the vaccine. Try to have bulk distribution or vaccination at the site of where you're storing the vaccine because of the temperature and the way that it, it transports. And so, you know, we need the learning lesson for us, Scott, here is that we need to be looking at a country like Israel, who's now number one in the world in terms of vaccination rate and its ability to vaccinate uh, one million people so far, which is an insane number because they've been able to use their military. They put in place a very sort of methodological mechanism to distribute that vaccine. I'm not sure we're there yet. I also think that we were on holiday. Uh, and now that people are back in, at work, I expect that the government will be ramping up the vaccination in the coming weeks. Uh, you mentioned Israel, and we, we've certainly heard uh, uh, that, the name of that country being mentioned several times over the last few days. What are they doing right? How come they've made such gains? Well, they're a much smaller population than we are, first of all. And second of all, they have a their healthcare system is based around three major sort of organizations, as we'd like to call it. They have excellent electronic health records so they can keep track of people. They know who are the most immunocompromised. I mean, we can look at them at technological advancement that we don't have. Uh, our electronic health records are not the same way as Israel. Uh, they also deployed their military. I mean, that's a country that's in political crisis throughout its time. It's very much used to emergency, uh, ramping up emergency response. So all they had to do is deploy their military. I have to be very honest with you. That's not the same case in Canada. We do not use our military services in Canada unless they are last resort. Our military is reserved for it. If nobody else can do the job, then we use our military service. And that's strategically done by our country to make sure that our military is used for the most high profile, or the most uh, pertinent issues. And so that, I think we're going to be looking at the Canadian government at the model of the, how they're going to plan. To, and that's the, what we need to be urging the government to get information on is how do you plan to distribute that vaccine? We are getting early reports that they're utilizing uh, organizations like the Canadian Red Cross and other organizations that can be used to help distribute that vaccine. Um, again, getting back to uh, the Ontario government being hammered by some for having more uh, vaccine in the freezers than in people's arms, as is coming out today. We remember way back at the beginning of this, uh, when they were trying to ramp up testing, there were times when even the premier was frustrated that, you know, come on, why can't we get this moving? Is it the same sort of thing in the sense that government just has a hard time being nimble? Yeah, I think there is a part of that. And I, I, honestly, I think that they were just on holiday. <laughs> and I don't think they actually yeah. thought this through. I think that, you know, they're they're getting back to work now. They're also probably dealing with the scandal of many of our politicians traveling over the holiday. That's going to take some time to address. But the, I think the pressure on the vaccination is so clear, especially, Scott, that the case numbers today are so high in Ontario. Yeah. So I think that it's, it's a different conversation when the case numbers were maybe lower than what we expected. Then you could say that, you know, we're doing well with our social interventions, sorry, public health interventions. So, you know, the need for a vaccine is not as urgent. But right now we're all saying the same thing, which is, number one, our case numbers are increasing by the day. Uh, the measures we have in place are not really that working as well as we thought they would. And number three, other countries in the world are amping up uh, their vaccinations at a big scale. And the more we hear reports of countries like Israel and others in the UK that are able to vaccinate more people faster, it's going to make us question, why are we not doing the same? And it will put the pressure on the government to actually get to work on that. 
All right, also some inconsistency, doctor, in regard to the dosage. Uh, there's the provinces such as BC that have said, we're going to, as soon as we get them, we're going to give them to everybody and just hope that the next shipments come in in a quantities large enough to give them a second vaccination. We've heard Quebec the same sort of thing. Um, you know, uh, just trying to get everybody vaccinated once. Health Canada says these things have only been tested with a backup dose, with suit with two doses. So there is no clinical proof of any of this. Some have said, well, this could encourage a mutation. Others on the other side have said, hey, it's better to at least get, you know, as many people vaccinated as we possibly can. What are your thoughts on the, the, the questions around dosage in the first or the second? I mean, this is the most frustrating part from a health policy expert perspective, because I think that we spend a lot of time and money and energy in conducting those, you know, randomized controlled trials, three trial, three phase trials to get to the point of saying that we need those two doses. There is no evidence to say that or not conclusive evidence to say that one dose is enough. We suspect that maybe one dose might be enough. But the evidence is clear, however, that we need to do those two doses with 21 days on average, depending on which vaccine, whether it's the Pfizer or Moderna, between both doses. So when each province start, decides to take that on their own without following a national guideline, I think that's going to create problems. And we're seeing this over and over again. That, you know, we're not asking for all provinces to follow a certain rule, but they have to come to agreement on how we're going to distribute that vaccine ahead of time so that we don't engage in a conversation as why Quebec is deciding to give one dose instead of two, why British Columbia is going to do a different me- measures, and whether Ontario will do also a different measure altogether. So it's, I think it's clear to stay, it's very important to stay very close to the evidence that was presented, which is that it should be two doses per individual, 21 on average days apart. So that being said, do you always hold that one dose back or do you just try to flood with as many as you can with with whatever you have? And then hopefully the second dosage, uh, the second shipment will cover those. I mean, should you hold them back or just, you know, get rid of the fridge, as Dr. Bonnie Henry says? I don't think you should get rid of the fridge. I think you should be you, you should be looking at the stock number you have right now of how many we are able to secure into our labs or our our vaccination clinics and start immunizing the most immunocompromised on our uh, frontline healthcare workers, knowing the numbers that we have while attempting to secure extra numbers. So let me give you an example. Scott is immunocompromised. He needs the vaccine. We know, according to evidence, he needs two doses of that vaccine for it to be effective. We ensure that two of those doses are reserved for you and we go down the list. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? Like, we know from, from what Pfizer and Moderna has mm. told us that every individual should be vaccinated with two doses of the vaccine uh, on average 21 days apart. We need to reserve that and while at the same time continue to try to secure more of the vaccine. So that being said, uh, Ahmad, should Health Canada or the Prime Minister clarify this? Yeah, I think, and, and I think we are going to see a lot more information on this. I think that there is an urge on two big fronts. I think what's coming across to us today is that People want to know, when are they getting vaccinated? How much more of the vaccine are we getting? And how is it going to be different between different provinces? And I suspect that this week, you and I will be talking a lot about this because there's going to be a lot of pressure on the federal government and provincial government to provide answers on those three very important key fronts. All right, you mentioned before uh, everybody is very disappointed in leadership from all parties that have have taken off and gone overseas, taken flights on holiday, or in some for for personal uh, emergency measures, funerals, what have you. Uh, and the public reaction is obviously uh, one of, of, of frustration. What about the mental health aspect after the holidays are over? We've talked about this before, heading into the darker days of winter uh, and, and people feeling, uh, feeling fatigued about this. And, and plus, you know, uh, a cranky that the politicians have done what they've done. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is a bit disappointing to hear those news. I mean, I will I will say this, though, that. You know, some of those politicians did travel for family emergencies, from what we're hearing, and yeah. funeral services. And that's fair, and, and I mean, we can all understand that. But the ones who've decided to travel for leisure or pleasure, it's an issue. I mean, it comes back to the issue that people in Canada, uh, it builds the trust that we have in our political figure, Scott, will be questioned now. And the most important thing throughout the crisis is to, you know, trust your leaders. Uh, and you build trust by being accountable to the rules you have put in place. So. It's very surprising to me. I mean, I'll be very honest with you. When I heard the news, I was a bit disappointed, but also just surprised that this wasn't, nobody alerted them that, 
you're a public figure, and by virtue of being a public figure, you're held accountable for your actions. You're asking people to follow those guidelines, and then you're not following them. And I'm just surprised that nobody flagged that to them within their own cabinet, with all their teams, family members, perhaps. And I don't know how they're going to be able to address this coming forward. And, you know, especially when the week before the holiday, we were talking about the UK banning flights or or banning flights into the UK and the renewed interest in in monitoring who's coming in and out of the Toronto airport. I mean, it certainly was top of mind just before the holiday. Yeah, and it makes me question, were they flying private? Like, how did they think they were going to be seen at airports? I mean, it's just, it's a PR nightmare, but also it's, it goes to the issue about building trust. I mean, we really, we want to be able to believe our leaders when they tell us, please follow those guidelines. And so here's what I will say to this. Please follow public health experts, because I think that the advice of those public health experts is from science. Politicians are not scientists. They're politicians. Some of them happen to play both roles, but you need to follow the science, because I think for us, for me at least, as a man of science, what held true throughout the crisis is the evidence. And so when we follow the evidence that, you know, traveling, it puts you at a higher risk for uh, getting COVID-19, it stops you from thinking about travel. Um, and so that's, I think, what's going to you know, be consistent throughout this. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Happy New Year to you and be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, let me read you the headlines. Uh, NDP stripped Nikki Ashton of her critics' role after recent trips to Greece. Uh, trip to Greece. The Canadian politicians who traveled during the holidays admit a coronavirus pandemic. Two Liberal MPs resigned from government roles after traveling amid coronavirus. Here's a list of the politicians who traveled abroad. Uh, resign now, says the banner taped on Rod Phillips' constituency office sign. Lots of people are incredibly cranky, uh, including my kids, uh, having to stay stay home and, uh, and and not uh, see friends and so on and so forth. I, I seeing the friends is, is the big thing for them. I mean, just the fact that, uh, you know, my mother's in a home, couldn't uh, go there, uh, couldn't see my uh, sisters, any of that. But you all have those stories. We all know uh, what we are going through. So when you see people getting on an airplane and flying to sunny destinations, uh, some, I guess, legitimate uh, uh, excuses in the sense that there was a, a death or a funeral. Others just uh, getting uh, some sunshine. Uh, let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. Happy New Year to you. I hope you're doing well. And I didn't get to go out of the country. I didn't even get to go to Newfoundland, Scott. So I'm, I'm bitter, bitter, bitter like you, bitter like you. I, I will admit, also, that I don't blow all my credibility. I did, I did drive 85 kilometers down the road, which we're allowed to do uh, here to a place in Quebec for a couple of days, but uh, didn't get out of the country. No, I hear you, and and the premier certainly talked about those that are going to other residents and such. But you know, I was saying to my wife when this story broke out between Christmas and New Year's. I mean, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable sitting on a plane right now, knowing that just the week before the holiday, we were talking about the UK banning or banning flights in and out of the UK because of a new strain, and then uh, more testing, vigorous testing uh, at Toronto Airport, and then boom, you know, people are getting on planes. It just, I, I don't get it. Yeah, I, I look, I used to be one of those, for the last five years, I was one of those 100K flyers, never had an issue, got my million miles with Air Canada, did all of that. I, I think I will still have trouble for a little while getting on a plane, and particularly right now, I, I would only get on in the most um, essential of circumstances, right? Um, so uh, others maybe clearly have a have a different view and aren't as concerned and, and good for them. But when you're a public official and we're getting lectured day after day after day about follow the rules, follow the rules, stay home, behave um, from all manner of leaders, and that's what they're supposed to do. And then their own party members and significant lead candidates like uh, Rod Phillips or Tracy Allard in Alberta go out and do this. It's like, you guys are blowing your credibility and you're hurting yourselves, you're hurting your organization and you're hurting all of us because we're looking and seeing, hey, if they're doing it, why do we have to go through this agony? And, you know, it's, it's, it seems odd that, um, that some feel that this, I just don't know how you justify it. Is it, does it not matter? Are you privileged? 
Um, the fact that you would do this anyway, like you said, you could be a frequent flyer and, and feel that there's no, no real concern in all of this. But is there a way out of this? I mean, is the only way out to resign? Well, I think Phillips had no choice, given his significant position he holds in uh, in Ontario, did hold as finance minister. And I, I don't know Rod Phillips personally, but I know lots of people who know him, and you've heard many of them speak positively of him. He he had a lot of political sense, and he, it appeared, apparently, strangely, abandoned him. I, I think he did the right thing. I, I think, yes, if you're a, a minister of the crown and you uh, you've done something that goes against the very guidelines your government has uh, set out then sure that's that's you know that that should be a resigning or a firing offense i think at, at this point in time unless again as i say you know you had to go uh, because your mother or your sister or somebody in your immediate family was 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 dying or extremely ill then there there, there certainly should be an exception there but because you need a break um, and, and I don't begrudge them breaks, but right now, come on, you got to be more sensible than that. And the other thing that I, what about the leaders, uh, involvement here? Because you would think, you know, maybe there isn't restrictions in place, but there would certainly be guidelines. I mean, you know, I'm blessed enough to be able to work from home and yep. my company yep. has given me, given me the equipment to enable me to do this. But that also comes with responsibility, and if I'm going somewhere, I'm supposed to tell them. And there are guidelines. Again, they can't tell you what to do, but they can certainly suggest or have guidelines to follow. I can't see how none of none of these uh, political parties, wh- whether, you know, whatever stripe or whatever, whether it's provincial, federal, what have you, there isn't some sort of guideline that said, hey, here's here's the protocol for us as all eyes are on us. Yeah, and so it gets back to responsibility and awareness, right? Once you've reached a certain position, so you're a minister of the crown, uh, using those examples again, you've been chosen by your premier to fill those roles because he, or in both cases, believes you have some sense of judgment and understanding and awareness when you're in a position of leadership. These aren't teenagers gallivanting off to uh, Acapulco to get wasted for the weekend, <laughs> right? These are senior leaders in governments of Canada that are on the front lines right now dealing with the worst thing any of us have had to deal with in over a 100 years. Uh, so these premiers do assume um, that these ministers do have some common sense and judgment. And, I, you know, I have some uh, some space for Doug Ford and Jason Kenney on this. Ultimately, they can give the orders and the guidelines. They can't lock these people in their homes, but they are going to wear it. In the case of Jason Kenney, more particularly maybe than Doug Ford, uh, he seemed to be very comfortable with, many people traveling, um, you know, his own chief of staff. And again, I'm not begrudging people vacations, but now's not the time to vacation, right? Particularly in the United Kingdom, where his chief of staff went. It's just not the time to do it. If you need a vacation, find something to do in your home and around. I know there are limitations, but these people all should know better. And, and Kenny probably is in more trouble than Ford is with this, even though Jason Kenny is a strong majority in Alberta right now. He's got long time conservative voices out there, some you would well know from the radio, like Dave Rutherford, who you know, helped mm. bring the federal parties together years ago, well-respected in Alberta, just savaging him for uh, a failure of leadership right now. So what does this incident, any one of these incidents, this these series of incidents, what does this change? Does this change anything, uh, whether it's public view, whether it's the way people are going to do things in the future? What has this caused? Well, I think it just it diminishes the credibility of political leaders to go out and tell us, stay in your house, don't do this, don't do that. I think you're going to see, and we were seeing it anyway before this happened, more pushback, more challenge. Uh, at a time, you, you remember, Scott, in March and April when the pandemics first came forward, pretty much everybody uh, across the country, I would say 95, 96% of Canadians just did what the governments told them to do. Stay home. They followed the rules. And as things improved, um, and people became more aware and 
people became a bit fatigued, there was probably a lessening of that. Uh, certainly, uh, I think it's going to be tougher for governments to come out and wag their fingers and say, you got to do this and you got to do that and we're doing it and to be believed. And that's really unfortunate because the messages are probably right, but the messengers are damaged and that's going to slow maybe uh, how quickly we get out of this pandemic because we just don't believe the politicians to the extent that maybe we should uh, when we see incidences like this. Um, how much damage does this have on that fatigue? Um, are there those that are out there? Of course, there are those that are out there that say, well, look, look what these people are doing. To hell, to hell with it. I'm going to do what I want to do. But that being said, and there certainly is, as one uh, article, here's a list of everybody who traveled abroad. It certainly isn't all of them. It certainly is not the majority. No, no. So look, what do you want the public to take away from this? Except it's the ones that I think, look, the, the vast majority of politicians have followed the rules. But again, it's never the vast majority of politicians that get the spotlight. When you have the finance minister in Ontario, when you have a senior minister in Alberta, when you have, you know, some well-known members of parliament from all three of the major parties doing this, uh, it, it's corrosive. You don't get rewarded for doing the good things. You get noticed for the bad things. So the fact that Justin Trudeau, Aaron O'Toole, Jagmeet Singh, Anime Paul, Mr. Blanchette have all apparently followed the rules is not going to matter. Uh, it's going to be the ones that didn't. That will grab the headlines because the headline we were getting before all of this was stay home, stay home, stay home, be safe. But some politicians aren't doing it, and that's probably enough, you know, to move maybe five or seven percent of Canadians into a place where they say, "To hell with this! I'm, you know, going to be less cautious, and I'm, I'm just going to go about my business because everybody else is doing it, so I am too." I don't think it's going to, you know, create a, a mass wave, but it, it, it'll make it harder. The governments and hell, and they're going to have to find new messengers other messengers to keep driving this message because politicians are going to be more uh, held to more scrutiny as messengers of uh, refined COVID appropriate behaviors. Uh, let's talk about what's going on in the United States. Uh, we're going to play you a couple of clips. I can't let you go without getting your take on this. I know we usually talk uh, a lot about Canadian politics, oh, yeah. but this just seems to be bizarre. Uh, and this is a call between the president and I believe a Georgia governor and or the secretary of state, uh, Brad Raffensperger. Donald Trump, I, I guess, trying to find more votes, more numbers, uh, uh, to somehow win or, or, or put into question this election. Uh, here's a clip of, uh, Donald Trump, uh, and that conversation. You should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. No, I know you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't have, you don't have, not even close. We hear they're shredding thousands and thousands of ballots. Uh, and now what they're saying, oh, we're just cleaning up the office. You know, I don't think that plays. Well, Mr. Mr. President, the problem that uh, you have with social media, they can people can say. No, I, no, this isn't social media. This is Trump media. It's pretty clear that we won. We won very substantially, uh, Georgia. Uh, you even see it by rally size, frankly. Thanks to ABC News for that. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's going on? Is it January 20th yet? <laughs> a day of transition, uh, two weeks from tomorrow. Uh, it's, I, I guess it just reinforces everything, uh, those who doubt uh, Trump's uh, abilities, um, to hear that tape, to see the delusions he lives through, the, the way he will go uh, about uh, trying to persuade people. I, I would encourage anybody, if you ever get to Texas, go to Austin, Texas, in the uh, the Johnson Presidential Library, and there's some great phone calls, too, where he's cajoling people, and you can listen to them. I mean, that's that's not a new type of politics in the U.S., but it's just another death knell for, for Trump uh, among those who may have been doubtful. With Among his supporters, they'll be cheering loudly and proudly. Go, Donald. Go, stand up for us. Be legitimate. But rally size Scott, are a barometer for votes. I mean, God help us all. Hey. Does this change any minds? Or if you're a supporter, you're still a supporter. If you're not, you're not. Uh, or, or, as you mentioned, is it a case of, 
of diminishing credibility here as supporters do hear this? Um, I don't think it changes any minds. Uh, as I say, I think, uh, well, it may change a few people who are more reasonable and voted for Trump as a disruptor as opposed to swallow Trumpism hook, line, and sinker. I, I guess the more important point is it's not going to change the outcome of the election. Uh, what is it? What does it do for democracy? Uh, obviously, oh, we're seeing people, people question. Vicious and and again reinforces the fact that they think there's all these sorts of you know, strategic alliances of old boys, as you know, old Donald Trump calls old uh, Secretary of State Rasberger, I believe his name is, to try and get it fixed up. Good for the Secretary of State for for pushing back there, at least in that clip of the conversation. It, it just breeds more cynicism. Breeds more cynicism. And, you know, we're just talking about that in Canada in regard to, uh, you know, politicians traveling outside of the country, uh, many questioning the different versions of, of, you know, between the provinces of, of how they're handling all of this. What does this do to or should we be questioning our leaders more? Oh, we should be questioning our should be questioning our leaders more, and we have to be more diligent in the questioning because that very social media that Trump was talking about makes it uh, makes it harder, right? It's easier, particularly right now. Uh, I've heard more stories about people getting imprinted with conspiracy theories and thoughts if they're at home more often now. They're reading Facebook all day. Uh, they're looking at other streams of social media, and it, it's it's easier uh, to distract people, to confuse people. Um, particularly during this pandemic. So I, I think it, there really is a responsibility for you, me, and, and many others who talk about these issues and ask questions about these issues to to uh, to bring greater scrutiny as opposed to less uh, because uh, there's, there's such a, a greater line of direct feeding of information to uh, the public that uh, some of that goes in without any challenge. Where does this leave? And we've talked about this before the rest of the Republican Party. Um, you know, obviously, Donald Trump still has millions of supporters there. He does. Um, I, I, I guess you're going to have generational choices made. There'll be some who look at Trump and his style of campaigning and think, OK, that's a method and a model that works. So I can be outraged by it or I can just be quiet about it now and learn and appropriate things off of it. Others will say this is not the direction the Republican Party needs to go. Um, this this is not who we are. This is not who I am. We need to have a rethink. I mean, that's been the debate in the Republican Party before Donald Trump, and it started with the Tea Partiers, as you will recall, that lead led to you know the the nativist populist Trump coming to the fore. So the the Republican Party is still trying to figure out what it needs to be. And there will be many who think the Trump approach because he won an election is one that worth is still worth continuing to emulate. All right. Tim powers has been with us. Uh, Tim as always. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, be well and uh, hope you keep any resolute. Did you make any new year's resolutions this year, Tim? Uh, to stay sane. It's a harder one this year, Scott. <laughs> I think so. Uh, Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, yeah. Managing Director of Abacus Data. It is the 2021 edition of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Uh, now with all Thompsons uh, at home, uh, there's a couple of them right here. Kurt, come here. Uh, how's uh, the online schooling going today? Uh, it's good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like it. And how was your gym class? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was fun. So what did you do? Did you do like burpees in front of the screen? What did you do for Jim? Uh, we had to blow up a balloon and pick an item and like hit the balloon up in the air as long as you can with that item. So yeah. That's gym class? Yeah, that's yep. that much yeah. physical activity. <laughs> really? Did you break? Alicia's here too. Now you're still off for another week yeah. going to university. So yeah. you're not feeling the, the pressure of your brother home at this no, point. I'm sleeping. Doing nothing. <laughs> All right. There you go. Uh, one is sleeping. The other one's bouncing a balloon up and down for gym class. That'll work up a sweat, eh? You be- hey, Kurt, you better go for a shower. Are you back in class? Oh, get going. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, today marks the beginning of online learning uh, for this week anyway. Uh, let's bring in Karen Lieberman, reporter for Global News. Uh, she's juggling this, being a uh, professional woman and, of course, mother of two, and uh, now, of course, faced with online learning at home. Karen Lieberman is with us now. Karen, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm actually hiding in the basement right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I mine... guarantee that we might have some interruptions, but this is going to be my life for this week, like so many other working parents. Yeah, and and that's fine. Feel free. We, uh, you know, we've dropped our guard here long ago. Uh, so, describe the scenario for you at home in your personal uh, household. Sure. So, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. So, I, that means one is in JK, uh, and one is in grade two. My grade two is doing okay so far. Um, both have excellent teachers and they're amazing. And both teachers sent us, you know, a plan a couple of days ago um, with information and, you know, links to click on and this and that. And then we set everything up last night with charging our, you know, electronics and getting everybody their kind of spot to sit in. But um, they don't stop asking for snacks. They don't stop coming. <laughs> They keep coming over and asking me questions. I've explained to my daughter. I said, like, you're, you know, you're in grade two. Like, mommy's not there all day long. I, you know, I'm pretty sure you don't ask anybody questions. Like, you can probably figure it out. Um, but you know, I'm around, so that means that I, you know, I'm somebody that they can talk to. And then my four-year-old, who I hear running around right now, um, he's four. So I mean, it's it's almost impossible. He was super excited to see his teacher and his classmates this morning, um, and that didn't last very long. And then the teacher, God love her, she's wonderful, but she just couldn't get the Wi-Fi um, to work properly. So we kept losing her. Uh, now she's running home from the school to try it at home um, at one thirty. So for the last twenty minutes, my husband's been playing hockey with him outside. I'm trying to put a story together for the news tonight. Uh, I set an alarm so that I would remember that you guys are calling me to chat with you. <laughs> so it's, oh, it's been man. a little bit challenging. Um, and like many others, um, you know, I'm as my children were attending in class, um, that for me was the best option for us, you know, and we felt confident with that and the kids were happy and we were happy. And so we're just really hoping that, you know, as Minister Lecce had reiterated over the weekend, that the kids will be going back Monday. So have you heard anything or, or any rumors or, or uh, uh, any sort of information at all that this could be extended? I haven't personally. I've spoken to a couple people um, and they, I think, honestly, I think it's all speculation at this point. I don't think anyone really knows. Yeah. Um, and and let's, let's be honest, all the decisions that have come out so far, you know, since the pandemic began have been pretty last minute. So I don't think if anybody tells you they know otherwise, um, maybe they have a source that's, you know, better than mine. But, but you know, by all accounts at this point, it looks like the kids are certainly going back on Monday, at least elementary. And then I, I believe the high school kids are going back later on in the month. Um, because, you know, the data has shown, as we've seen from, you know, countless studies, and doctors have spoken and said, yes, there are cases in schools in this province. And, and you know, obviously that's con- concerning. Um, however, um, they're not as astronomical um, you know, as they are in the community. So if the, if the schools continue to do their part uh, and the school boards, then, you know, hopefully we can keep those cases low. And, you know, I'll give you an example, actually. Um, two or three, a couple of weeks into the school year, um, my son was already back home in isolation. We had to all get tested because his, not the teacher, but the ECE in the room had COVID. Right. Um, and so that was, you know, so I've, 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 I know how it feels. I've been in this, you know, been in this like other working parents and it was very nerve wracking. Uh, we had to all get tested. Um, I was worried because we had a little bit of like some minor cold symptoms. We all tested negative. We did the isolation nonetheless and nobody got it in the classroom. So to mm. me, that says that the masks and the precautions that they're taking are working. So, you know, miss so-and-so went home, she got better. When she got the all clear, she returned, and no student, it was passed on to no one. So to me, that was a good learning experience. Fascinating. And again, mm-hmm. as you said, we're, we're learning as we go here. Yeah. Uh, let's get back to your four-year-old, JK. 
what is that class like? I mean, you know, I was up this morning taking a little bit of a peek uh, at my son. He's 13. and we're, our, our kids are 13 and 18. One's taking university from here. Uh, the other one, obviously, uh, in grade eight. Uh, and, and took a peek in, and I saw the teacher and, and some students there on the little boxes and such. And, and we did enroll Kurt in a summer learning program uh, as well, just to get him uh, up to speed with what had, had been lost and, and, and to get more familiar with online learning and we did really notice quite a difference between what we were dealing with at the end of last year and what we are dealing with now uh, although there is some some glitches as you've said it seems like they do have a bit more of a, a better model and template for this now I absolutely agree with you I would say that thinking back though to last spring I'm not actually sure how my husband and I have survived it working from home with the kids at home but mm-hmm. you know at that point, the pressure was off because, well, Ashton hadn't started. That's my, my younger one. He hadn't started school yet. So, you know, I bought him a couple little workbooks to kind of play with. There was way more screen time than I would have liked. And then my daughter's teacher, um, well, she just sort of had made suggestions. Like, these are things that you can do. And while I was frustrated at first because I felt like she was missing out um, and it wasn't as much of a hands-on educational experience as I'd hoped and had heard in other, you know, uh, with other friends' children, in the end, it probably was a blessing because there was no pressure. So I feel like now this week there is there is you know definitely more pressure because I don't want them to lose out on the curriculum. Having said that, the four-year-old Ashton, um, his teacher, I guess because we've already kind of been down this road when they went in isolation the last time, she you know uh, that word that we've heard a million times pivoted right away into online learning, and so we have this a schedule. It's a bit of a loose schedule, but it's still scheduled nonetheless. You know, first thing, 9 a.m., they had like a group chat and they sang their songs and got up and danced and clapped. Then he had a gym class. I could not for the life of me get him into that Zoom link. I tried everything I could. So we called that a loss and we moved on. <laughs> we played cars. Um, and then at one soon, he'll go back into that class again from 1.30 to 3.00. And, um, you know, Miss Wheeler will do the various activities. But, I mean, again, it's a JKSK class. So, you know, letters, poems, songs, very, very basic stuff. Whereas my daughter, um, I've, I've listened in a couple times now throughout this, this day. And, um, and they're, you know, they're following along. They're doing their math, their science. And, again, she's, she's in second grade. So um, I think the teachers are doing the best they can, and it's difficult yeah. for them. And in my story tonight, I managed somehow today to find five minutes to Zoom a teacher on her lunch break. She's a mother as well, and she teaches. she's a French teacher, and she's doing the best she can. And her husband was home supervising the daughter. Now she said he has to go out to, I guess, meetings or, or attend a conference, probably virtually, but he can't supervise the daughter. So she says, you know what, mm-hmm. the rest of the day, I'm with my students virtually, and my daughter knows, you know, if you have to come and interrupt my class, come and interrupt my class. That's just, This is the way we're all doing the best we can. And I think people are fine with that, you know, yeah. I, I, and, and I think it gives a, a whole other dimension uh, to learning. Again, it's not all about the A, Bs, and Cs and, the, and, and multiplication tables. It's about the communication. And I know for, for my 13-year-old, it was just important to see everybody has a little face in the little box and, and able, be able to interact with the other students. Absolutely. I mean, they've, they've missed so much of that. And then, you know, again, we just had winter break, but, you know, many of us were just in our homes or, you know, went over to Toboggan at the local, you know, mountain. So we're not allowed to interact with other people. So seeing them at least, you know, in a familiar, like familiar faces, I think it helps, you know, tremendously. Having said that, I'm still of the camp that, you know, is hopeful that the children will go back next week because I just don't personally, I just don't know how we would be able to make this work longer than this one week. And and again, I mean, the experience that I have having two teenagers in the house is Mm -hmm. much different from having a seven and a four year old in the house. I can only imagine what that is like. My, my wife has a coworker, uh, she's a teacher and three kids at home under the age of nine. So you can imagine she's no, trying just, to teach I her class. So much credit. I really, yeah, that's, you that's know incredibly what? They're difficult. amazing. And you know, we're all in this together and we're trying to make it work for, to keep the kids safe, but also, you know, not fall behind. 
So obviously you've got your hands full there, uh, seven and four years of age. Can you give parents any tips, stuff that has worked? Uh, you said something earlier that I, I, I jotted down that I wanted to come back to. You said last night you were trying to find when you were recharging everything and so on and mm-hmm. getting them ready, a spot for them to sit in. And mm-hmm. that is really important too, because we thought that with my son coming home, it's like, all right, where's he going to go? So oh uh, how important is that? to find that spot. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? I have to say that I feel very privileged because we actually, in the midst of this crazy time that we're all in, we actually moved to a house that has a backyard. So that's been so helpful. Um, And the kids no longer share a bedroom. So we've, we've moved into a bit, bit of a bigger space. Mm -hmm. So we're able to separate the kids and I have the little one with me. Um, and then, you know, my daughter is, is sitting in the kitchen. My husband is in another room with the door closed because he's been on conference calls or he's getting back on one shortly. So, I mean, but that's not the reality, certainly for other people like myself living in Toronto. But, you know, adapt, try to do the best you can. And as, you know, another woman who I speak with, and she's in my story tonight, she's from um, People for Education. So she's an education advocate. And a kidder said, you know what, lower the bar. We all have to lower mm. the bar, yeah, to lower yeah. our expectations, and we have to understand that this is this is learning. You know, as you yourself just said, it's not necessarily all about the ABCs and math and you know subtraction and multiplication and division. It's it's just you know real world experience and um, just finding creative ways of making it work. And hopefully uh, the week will go fast. Uh, that that'll be a great interview with you and Andy Kidder. We've had yeah. her on before, and again talked about that same issue. I mean, you know, you remember back to grade six, grade four, whatever. I mean, can you remember what you're actually taught? It was those experiences, and the lesson here is not necessarily uh, math or English. The lesson here is life skills mm-hmm. on learning how to live during a pandemic. Uh, this mm-hmm. is the first crisis of a privileged generation. This will have a life lasting impact on them. Uh, moving forward. So again, I think that's the lesson. You can come back to the other stuff when times uh, get back to normal, whatever that is. Totally agree with you. And, and you know, that's what we're trying to instill in our kids is an appreciation for what we have. Number one being our health and um, and the rest will come. And, um, you know, at least they get to see their teachers and talk to them and interact, you know, in a somewhat unconventional way, you know, albeit on, on their laptops or their iPads with their friends, but it's something. Uh, the challenge in our house with teenagers is they're social. They want out. They want yeah. to. So it's it's trying to, uh, you know, it's not necessarily try to control them in the house. It's trying to keep them in the house. And mm-hmm. and that was the you know the big breakdowns this Christmas and and such was how mm-hmm. you know how come they can go out and I can't go out and my friends are doing this and and you know over time and it's really taken this long. It's taken the what is it forty three weeks that we've been in this. I can really and and, and maybe your family's too young for this but um i can really feel it bringing our family together and i guess it can mm-hmm. go one way or the other but i can really feel that living smaller has helped us and will change our view moving forward perhaps a little too young for your kids for that but you know at the end it won't be a bad life lesson to learn yeah no i agree we've done tons more stuff together we've had no choice so you know everyone has to get along and yeah. we're going to do family movie night and uh you know, lots more meals together. And I have to say, as a journalist who's seldom home for dinner, it's been nice to, that, you know, that's been probably one of the perks for me is being around for the kids at the end of the day, um, you know, not missing bedtime. And so I've had to forgo, you know, live hits, but my managers are incredibly supportive and understand that, you know, there's a reason for it and it won't be forever. And, you know, we, we just have to look towards the light at the end of the tunnel and it's coming. And anything, speaking of light on the at the end of the tunnel, any press conferences, news conference scheduled in the next few days with Lecce on any of this that we know of, or again, uh, wait and see at this point? You know what? I, I, I haven't heard of anything today, so I, I couldn't say. I was watching our, our Queen's Park Bureau chief as best I can on Slack with some of the updates, and I know that there was something with Premier Ford, but I know I, I couldn't say if it's education-related or not. So what do you think your family has learned out of this? Um, I think I would say, you know, just let's do the best we can. Um, Let's understand that, you know, health is a priority right now, ours and everyone else's. And by staying home, we're keeping ourselves and everyone else safe. Um, And that, you know, 
let's let's do our best to learn as much as we can. But you know, if we if we miss out a bit, well, we'll have to play a big game of catch up when this is all over and done with. Yeah, imagine what next New Year's Eve will be like. Uh, Karen Lieberman has been with us, reporter for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News uh, tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on Karen's report, live from the homestead uh, and doing it with a four- and seven-year-old. Uh, it certainly does, um, what it doesn't uh, kill, it makes you stronger, doesn't it, Karen? It totally does. It really does. And I'm going to go up and I'm going to put a story together and I'm going to meet my deadline and, you know, maybe my son will miss another part of his class, but we'll try to make up for tomorrow. And if we don't, we don't. We'll get on with it. <laughs> Karen Lieberman, reporter for Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight for more on all of this. Karen, thank you so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. It's been a very bizarre <laughs> I guess that's an understatement. Uh, it continues to be a very bizarre situation in the United States uh, with President Donald Trump using every single option I guess he has trying to overturn uh, the election results uh, that have uh, Joe Biden as the winner of uh, the election and, of course, coming to power later on this month. Uh, that being said, uh, a tape has been released that uh, is a recording of uh, the president and the Georgia uh, secretary of state. And Trump is asking for another 11,000 some odd votes uh, in order to win. There's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Very bizarre scenario, uh, even when presented with the fact that the data the president is suggesting is not even accurate. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, our Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too, Reggie. Uh, reaction down there to this series of clips that have come out, is it the same old, same old? Either you love them or you hate them, and, and nothing much has changed. Does this reveal anything? Uh, I mean, it, it reveals that there's more of a fracture in the Republican Party than one might have originally assumed, given that there are, are a number of members from the GOP that are backing away or at least distancing themselves from the president's actions uh, on this phone call. Uh, but it also shows uh, that this is a president where reality is very quickly sinking in uh, to that he only has 16 days left in office. He is grasping at straws to do whatever he can to remain in power. And if you were listening closely to that phone call, Essentially, what you heard the president do for, for roughly an hour was read verbatim from, you know, things like QAnon and 4chan and all of these alt-right conspiracies. He is steeped inside of this nonsense and really is having a hard time breaking from it to see what the reality is. Uh, that, despite, I believe I heard that these votes in Georgia have been counted three times. They have been counted three times. Uh, they were counted once. They were counted a second time. The president went and asked for a third one. Uh, and they all revealed the exact same thing in that President Trump lost. The president on that phone call yesterday said that he and his team have uncovered something like tens and tens and tens of thousands of votes that are for him. Uh, it's nonsense. They've had two months to bring that information forward. They haven't done so yet. He says that he's going to reveal it tonight during his rally. Uh, but nonetheless, the numbers simply don't exist. Uh, the, the information that's been presented to him by the secretary of state has been verified over and over again. Uh, and what it shows is that the president lost. And when he says that he wants them to come up with 11,780 votes, that's because that would be one vote more than what Joe Biden got. So he's not even looking to have all of these tens of thousands of votes given to him. He's simply looking for them to find one vote to overturn uh, the results of this election, which plays into his own claims of election fraud. How do you think Americans are responding to his reaction to when this this Georgia secretary of state said the numbers just aren't there? The information that you have is wrong. I mean, that's pretty powerful well, words I, to say to a president. They, they are powerful words to say. And, and this is something that President Trump hasn't really experienced in the four years that he's been in office, which is Republican resistance to what he is saying. He's oftentimes been egged on by his own party. But he's now running into these headwinds. And, well, the general population amongst the United States, whether it's the 80 million who voted for Joe Biden or for the millions of Republicans who simply understand what the reality is, uh, the rest of the country listens to what the president has to say. There are still a good number of millions of Americans who believe that Donald Trump did win this election and that Joe Biden's win is illegitimate, illegitimate. 
and simply there because of fraud. So while Trump's words may not have any kind of bearing on what happens on Wednesday when Joe Biden is certified, this is going to work to sow distrust amongst those Republican voters uh, and further complicate Joe Biden's first years in office. At what point does everyone realize how dangerous this behavior is, including the Republican Party? Well, I mean, if you want to look at this from from a physical danger point, uh, all we have to do is wait 48 hours from now. The president has called on his supporters to rally in Washington, D.C., uh, and th- there has been kind of a- an angry undertone to these gatherings that are going to take place all over the downtown core. I mean, look, the, the mayor of Washington, D.C. has dispatched the National Guard to push back on any violence that that, in- that uh, kind of disrupts day-to-day operations within Washington. So there is a fear that the president's words, the president's uh, kind of failure to understand what's happening around him is going to become dangerous. But on the flip side of that, it's also going to become dangerous for American democracy, because what the president is doing right now is lifting an authoritarian undertone uh, as he really tries to simply say, look, you said that Joe Biden should be the president. I'm not going to give up my power. Uh, many said that, you know, his reasons for refusing to concede all of this is that he wanted to continue to raise money, which they've raised millions since the election was over. Uh, and as well as those two valuable uh, Senate seats in Georgia. But it seems now that it's even gone beyond that. Well, I mean, this, this has gone beyond anything to what anybody has covered over the last four years when it comes to this presidency. But going to that, uh, that Senate race in Georgia tomorrow, there are fears amongst the Republican Party that Trump's phone call over the weekend did not help and could actually work to depress Republican turnout. Uh, you heard the president uh, stop short of essentially saying that the secretary of state could be held criminally responsible if he doesn't overturn these elections and says that if there's a loss on the Republican side in the Senate, it will be because uh, of inaction on Georgia election officials part. So this really could work against the Republicans, but by also driving out the Democrats to ensure that there is a surge of votes uh, for, for the Democratic Party. And what it could ultimately do is release the Republican stronghold on the Senate for the first time in a decade and give Democrats and Joe Biden full control over Washington. So there's a lot at stake with what the president was saying in that one hour phone call. Uh, you talked about the splintering, the divisiveness that we're starting to see within the Republican Party, but there's still a few that are really defending Donald Trump in this. Why is that? Uh, because their political futures are on the line. Look, there's a number of people who are a part of this kind of dozen or so senators that are going to object to Joe Biden's certification on Wednesday. And that is because some of them are up for reelection during the midterms in 2022. And if President Trump continues to kind of play puppet master uh, and hold the strings to the Republican Party, he could very easily primary uh, somebody who decides to go against him. Uh, or, or he could simply use the power of social media to ride that person out of office. So there are personal and kind of greedy reasons for some people to be latching on to what the president is saying, or they have presidential aspirations of their own, like Ted Cruz, where in 2024, they want to be able to run on a platform of, I stuck up for Americans who believe that the election in 2020 was fraudulent, uh, and try to use that uh, as a policy to move forward on. There, there are a number of reasons why the Republicans are standing by Donald Trump, But number one, oftentimes, is simply fear. I remember when the election ended, there was still chatter about, well, there's that Senate race coming in January. But this has proven to be quite substantial. Uh, We're understanding that even it appears that there's more uh, Georgians voting in advance of this than in the actual presidential campaign. What about this Senate race? How important has it become? You talked about control of the Senate. but, But which way could this go? Do we know yet? Any indication? Well, I mean, we have to look back, uh, you know, what happened a couple of months ago, and there has been uh, kind of enormous turnout for for this election. And that's because there's just been so much money dumped into this one election. uh, And that's because of the stakes, because control of the Senate is up for grabs. Uh, And when we look at 2020, early voting, advanced voting, voting by mail uh, was dominated by the Democratic Party. And there is kind of a hope here that uh, that these early surges in numbers uh, could potentially benefit the Democrats like it did back in November. Uh, you know, we have to wait to see what personal turnout is going to be or in-person turnout will be uh, tomorrow on Election Day. Uh, but the reason so much money has gone into this is simply because Republicans cannot afford to lose control of this, because if the Republicans lose control of the Senate, anything that Joe Biden wants to do will be easily passed because Kamala Harris will become the tie-breaking vote 
to bring everything to 51. That has to do anything from a legislative policy to potentially expanding the Supreme Court. So it's not just Republican kind of policy and ideology that's on the line. It really is how the country is going to move forward. And Republicans simply don't want to let Democrats have their way. Wow. Um, obviously, COVID-19 continues to, to ravage uh, America and other parts of the world as well. Not a lot of mention, no mention of that from the president, just more chatter about his election and his result. How is that playing with Americans? The fact that, it, well, you know, I mean, none, none of the, the major concern here, which is the pandemic, doesn't seem to be it's lost in the sauce. No, and we've said this repeatedly. When President Trump during the election campaign said that on November 3rd, nobody would talk about COVID-19 anymore, he was simply projecting inwards to the rest of the country by saying he was not going to talk about COVID-19. Look, there's 350 plus thousand deaths in this country and hospitalizations were at their highest uh, that they have ever been uh, since the pandemic started over the weekend. And there's something like 100,000 people in hospital every single day for the last 33 days. That should be enough for a president to come forward to say there is a crisis that I need to deal with. But that phone call that was released over the weekend with Georgia's election officials, with the president going so far into these conspiracies that he was talking about, it shows where his focus is and where his focus isn't. And it's part of the reason why you're seeing some Republicans step back. The president was uh, slow to sign COVID relief bill. The president has been simply arguing with states, saying that it's their fault and their responsibility uh, to ensure that these uh, vaccine doses are being handed out, despite the fact the federal government has failed to meet what their expected quotas and goals would be for the end of the year. Uh, and, you know, this has been reported over and over that President Trump's loss in November was partly a referendum on his uh, actions during the COVID-19 pandemic. And what we're seeing play out over the last several weeks of him simply just ignoring it is part of the reason why he's been pushed out of office. And, you know, how ironic is it, Reggie, that now finally this this bill is passing with re- with regard to relief for Americans? We've already seen this happen in Canada, but Americans have, have still not received any sort of relief for this. Initially, the figure was 600 bucks, and he, the president didn't seem interested in signing that. But now that push has come to shove and where we are, you know, he said, well, they should get $2,000. And now Mitch McConnell, Republican, is saying, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Why this move? Well, I mean, President Trump sat on the sidelines during the negotiations for the most recent uh, bill for COVID relief. And think about it. There was a bill that was ready to be passed earlier this summer that Mitch McConnell simply wouldn't even bring to the floor. And Donald Trump left his Treasury secretary, amongst other cabinet members, to be the ones in charge of negotiating this. And he didn't put kind of a rubber stamp on what he wanted, you know, partly knowing that Republicans are fiscally conservative. They don't want to be, uh, you know, handing out government money to Americans who may not need it. But at the end of the day, if President Trump had simply come forward and said, this is what I want to do, uh, given the number of people who used to fall in line with the president, there's a better chance that this could have moved forward at a much quicker pace. But he sat on the sidelines uh, and let Republicans and Democrats simply fight it out while the American public were left to simply wait and go further into debt trying to make ends meet. So this is just another stain on President Trump's uh, uh, end of his presidency when he really could have had his hand in the mixing bowl trying to do anything that he could uh, and now he has Democrats on his side and Republicans against him uh, and kind of top his <laughs> bottom right now in the final weeks of President Trump. It is absolutely bizarre. What's the relationship like between Mitch McConnell and the president now? Well, I mean, it's fractured and it's strained. Uh, and this is simply because, you know, Mitch McConnell was one of the first and most senior Republicans to acknowledge that Joe Biden uh, is the president-elect and is going to be inaugurated on January 20th. Obviously, that got under the skin of President Trump. And you now have Mitch McConnell actively trying to work with uh, the minority of Republicans who are, are you know, not going to object to, uh, to certification on Wednesday. He, has, he wants nothing to do with these senators who are, are trying to get in the way of, of how the U.S. Constitution is supposed to move forward with this. Uh, and that has strained the relationship between Trump and between McConnell. It's likely not going to do anything going forward. I mean, McConnell's tenured, he's been there for, for decades, and he has uh, you know, another six years left after he was just reelected in November. So he has nothing really to worry about. Uh, and he got through the policies that he wanted to get through himself. Uh, nonetheless, you know, a, a strain between the party leader and the majority leader in the Senate obviously kind of, you know, exposes how vulnerable the system can be. And we're kind of seeing that play out right now leading up to Wednesday.
All right, so talk a little bit about what can happen in the next uh, few days with these rallies that that the president has uh, planned. What can we expect to see? Obviously, Washington concerned, calling out the National Guard. What is the objective? What, what, what does he hope to accomplish here? And I know you don't have the answer to this, but what can we expect? Well, we can expect uh, potentially a similar vision to what we saw in Michigan when we had protesters storming the state capitol uh, based on Governor Gretchen Whitmer's uh, you know, policies on how she was dealing with COVID-19 and trying to get the electors put in place that would be more favorable to Donald Trump. This is just going to be on a much more kind of grand scale. Uh, the issue here is, and, you know, it's hard to tell whether or not Trump supporters understand this or they're just following the call. There really is nothing that can stop Joe Biden from becoming president. Congress is going to meet, and while Republicans can object to this, Democrats hold control in the House, and that ultimately is going to make the decision. Uh, And they're not going to go against what the will of the voter was, nor are they going to go and favor the Republicans. Joe Biden is going to be certified on Wednesday, and the noise outside is simply going to be egged on by a president who does not want to let go uh, of the Oval Office. So while there is a chance here for this to turn violent, there is a chance here for Donald Trump to continue to rip apart uh, the kind of foundational base of the Republican, uh, the noise outside is not going to, to change anything. And there's going to be a, a you know, harsh come to Jesus moment on Wednesday night or Thursday morning when certification happens, when Trump supporters all realize that the game is officially over. Once we do get to that point, Reggie, and this is the last question, I know you got to go. How, um, once this is all over, how do the Democrats unite? How do they fix all of this? How do they, more importantly, I mean, I'm sure you're not going to get a Republican to become a Democrat in any way or vice versa, but how do you, how do you instill confidence in these institutions that the president has taken the last four years to take shots at? It's a good question, uh, and it's going to be a difficult process for, for someone like Joe Biden, who not only is trying to kind of rebuild what the Washington normals used to be, but also trying to rebuild a fractured country uh, that's been economically uh, uh, destroyed by a virus that the president has paid little attention to. This is a monumental task for Joe Biden. Uh, the one thing that he has going for him is, well, his party is fractured in its own way between the progressives and the moderates. Uh, the Republican Party is also fractured in a way, though, that the Republican moderates oftentimes will side with someone like Joe Biden, who is willing to reach across the aisle. So we may see kind of, uh, you know, a, a mending of the parties with people like Mitt Romney or Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins, who understand that in order to get things passed, you need to be able to work together. And that clearly hasn't happened for the last four years. So there is an opportunity here for Joe Biden to be able to kind of rally not only his party, but the moderate part of the Republican Party as well. But this is not going to be, you know, fixed in the blink of an eye. This is going to be an arduous effort for Joe Biden. And like I said, the undermining of his and legitimacy of his own presidency being called into question by President Trump, this is going to be something that takes months, if not years, uh, to kind of deal with. Hmm. Reggie Giacchini's been with us, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You know, it's, it's fascinating that um, did we did we really expect anything else? Like, it's just progressively gotten worse since the president became elected. And everybody, oh, I can't believe what he just did. I don't know. Look at the last 20 things he's done. And, you know, whether you support uh, a person's politics or not, that's one thing. But at what point do you start to question their stability, their mental health? Um, You know, Donald Trump's not stupid. There is a certain amount of street smarts there that got him to where he is. But his inability to take a loss says more about his psyche than anything. Uh, this isn't, uh, uh, I don't feel a stupid man. I, I, I don't think he's, uh, I think he's mentally ill. I, I think he just cannot handle the fact that he's been presented at a loss because in Donald Trump's world, when you run the company, there is no such thing. And unfortunately his dad or someone else isn't there to help him out here and give him the pass that he's always gotten in life. And it's sad because, you know, there there were a couple of accomplishments there, but the president's reputation just keeps going down and down and down and down to now he's, you know, he's got at times he's got more Democrats supporting him than he does in his own party 
It's absolutely bizarre, the chain of events that have happened and that this man is completely oblivious to the disease that's killing his country and yet still refuses to leave and is fighting battles that he's already lost. It's very bizarre. Uh, Reggie Giacchini, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. Uh, thanks, as always, for the time. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.